Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play podcast, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses. Today, I've got a very special guest from the American Institute of Economic Research. Uh, we've got Jeffrey Tucker. And Jeffrey, is a, 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 you're an online personality. I mean, I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time. Um, and you've been talking a lot over the course of the whole lockdown and the you know sort of government response to the pandemic, you just came out in September with a new book, Liberty or Lockdown, which uh, you were kind enough to send me a copy of. And, and I just finished reading it. And boy, I can tell you that there's a ton of new things that I read in your book that are bits of history from well before 2020. Um, as well as some of the things that have been published since the onset of the pandemic that have really uh, boggled my mind that, that some of this stuff is not more common knowledge. Um, and, you know, in your book, you talk about the history of pandemics. You talk about how pandemics have, how pandemics have always been managed throughout history. Um, you tell the story of the American Revolutionary War and the fact that the war was being fought at a time when there was a smallpox pandemics raging pandemic raging in uh, in North America and that at one point uh, George Washington who was tired of having soldiers falling sick decided to make the decision to inoculate his soldiers meaning purposefully infecting them so that everybody could get over it recover and then he wouldn't be faced with this this ongoing illness uh, plaguing his army um, which I thought was very interesting because um, when this whole thing started back in March on my personal Facebook page, I, I put up a comment and I said, you know, we already know that this thing is affecting older people and people that are compromised in some way with other illnesses. Young people who are healthy that live alone should be able to step forward to become ill, get it over with so that we can have a functioning economy. And in my own experience, there was over 180 responses from my Facebook friends um, to this comment, almost entirely putting me in the category of some kind of evil murderer who wanted people to die. And it was quite shocking for me um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, some of the things that people said, I don't think they would have said to my face, number one. Number two, I got a huge number of private messages from people who said, well, people getting the illness and getting better, isn't that how we become immune to these kinds of things? You know, sort of people with the, the logical normal response to illness spreading, that you get it, you become immune through the development of antibodies, et cetera. But when I asked those friends, hey, can you help me out in the post? Why don't you put your comments in there? None of them wanted to, with one exception, one guy did but they didn't want to put their name into the fray. And I think that ties in a little bit with some of the things that you put in your book in at trying to ask the question about how we ended up in a state where all of these Western countries have sort of locked everything down. What, what, you know, what gave you the, the mission or the purpose to decide to put all, number one, to start being the voice you know, sort of against the grain and to finally put it together into this book. 
I've been writing about pandemics for 15 years. Back in 2006, there was a, the avian bird flu had come along and the, the George W. Bush administration was trying to whip up some sort of tremendous public fear about this. The CDC was ready to go with quarantines and lockdowns and school closures and all these things. I, find all the, I found all this stuff was mortifying and I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I'm, I'm a liberal of the old school. I generally feel like people need to have rights and freedom, you know, mm-hmm. and that society more or less functions. And here you have the president of the United States screaming, trying to whip up a public panic against the avian bird flu. Um, hardly anybody paid attention to him at the time. I paid attention. I wrote about it. And what was amusing about that is it was, it was incredible. I mean, the, the amount of exaggeration and, and hysteria that the administration was trying to whip up against us, it, it turned out to be nothing. The, the avian bird flu never jumped from birds to humans. <laughs> it just stayed with birds. And, and that was it. So it fizzled out very quickly. But I was alarmed at the time that this was going on. So I started writing about it. And I felt like it was just within my sector of life, I was one of the few people that actually ever addressed it. Well, you know, I didn't know. Um, I knew the plans were there. Uh, so, so when this one came along and I started seeing the frenzy uh, build, you know, and the pictures from Wuhan coming out and, and, you know, the, all the news out of Northern Italy and stuff like that, I could see that there was a growing public panic that's inconsistent with traditional um, public health uh, uh, positioning, you know, uh, the, the way we've traditionally handled a disease is not to panic, but to calm people down so that society continue to function, we can deal with it and manage it uh, rationally. But that wasn't happening. So January 27th, I kind of sounded the alarm. I said, you know, the government has incredible, awesome powers here, and they may use them this time. Um, people said I was crazy, that we that would never happen in America, that we have a constitution, we have a bill of rights, we have uh, love of freedom, we're brave people, you know, we believe in free enterprise and and uh, we would never just shut down things on um, government authority. In fact, isn't that basically illegal in this country? Well, we found well, out. Yeah, we found out <laughs> otherwise, right? It, it, it's a good question. Um, you know, you talk about what people were seeing on television out of Wuhan, out of northern Italy. Um, and, you know, I think one of the big takeaways for me, I cut my cable subscription about six years ago. And so my access to news has been limited to number one, the daily newspaper I still subscribe to and look at, which I enjoy because I find that social media can become an echo chamber. They, they try to detect what you're interested in and feed you more of this. Whereas the daily newspaper just kind of lays it out. Here's all the news. You pick what you want, but the sensationalism of what's seen on TV um, if you just looked at the imagery and listened to what was being said, I don't think the media did a very good job of transmitting the, the facts and statistics of what was going on. You know, you, you see people ill, you see images of people in hospital, people, you know, gasping for breath. Um, but the numbers don't hold that this is actually what has been happening with this pandemic, does it? And, and you've published a lot of statistics in this book, why don't you give us a rundown of, of what we actually know as far as numbers of, of just how bad this illness is? We, we've known since, I mean, it's been known since February what the demographics of death are. And uh, I reread an article that appeared in Slate. I don't know if you know that magazine. It's kind of a center-left uh, publication. I think it's been taken over by MSNBC or something like that. And there was a, a doctor there who laid out all the data. 
uh, this was like March 3rd. And what he said is that this can be a serious um, uh, problem, respiratory disease for people uh, mostly over 70, but almost entirely with other comorbidities, people who mm. basically with weak immune systems. I mean, that's, that's, it's not even an age issue so much. I mean, even, even above 70, you have a, you know, 90, I think it's 94% chance of sur survival. It's maybe higher than that. Um, but the real problem is broken immune systems. You know, if your immune system not working, then uh, this could get you. And yeah, it, it's, this could get you or something else is going to get you for the most part with a broken immune system you have low life expectancy that is right. overwhelming uh overwhelmingly true of the demographics of, of death of this so what what happened here was that uh, um, basically sick old people died and um, a lot of them did and the average age of death is uh toggles between 78 and 80 in the united states around the world is 82. we have a relatively younger population and also a far less healthy population in many places in the world. Uh, for most everybody else, it's barely a noticeable disease at all. It's hardly, for the young people, under, under 30, it's not even a disease at all, really. It's, unless, unless you're extremely unhealthy. So we know this. What's interesting, too, about, about COVID-19, getting it, you know, the SARS-CoV-2, the virus, is that it's, it's, it's precise and predictable. And that cannot be said of the flu. Uh, which, which is much more lethal for, for young people, much more lethal for young people than, than COVID-19. I mean, and if you go back and look at uh, past pandemics, you know, like uh, 68, 69, uh, that one was very cruel for, um, for expecting women, right? Imagine that. And 57, 58 was uh, wicked on, on young people. And, and it, it's far less discriminatory. You know, it, it targeted sort of everybody and it was really bad stuff. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is strangely precise. You know, it, it takes out, it takes out people, unhealthy people with low life expectancy and that's it. Otherwise, it can, you get it, uh, whether symptomatically or asymptomatically, mostly asymptomatically, then you will be conferred uh, immunities just with every other virus. There's been some attempt to otherize uh, COVID, you know, as if it's an unprecedented thing that's, that's, that's come upon us, you know, and this is like all this talk about long COVID, you know, I asked, <clears throat> this is a, again, an attempt to say, this is weird and rare. You better panic. Yeah. We better, you know, um, I asked uh, uh, Martin Kuldorf about this, uh, the epidemiologist at, at, at Harvard with whom I've been working a lot recently. And he said, well, he made the following statement. He said, he said, well, you know, one problem is we don't really have a long term so we can't really talk about long-term yet because we're not really in the long-term. He said, but it wouldn't surprise me that uh, every virus, you know, can confer on, can, can, can trigger uh, other health problems in some portion of the population over the long-term. I mean, that's, that's just what viruses do. That doesn't um, take away from the immunities it builds, and it certainly doesn't somehow make the case for shutting down society and, and causing a massive public health crisis, which is what, what we've done. So, well, let me see if there's any other data. Oh, the other data is that um, long-term care facilities, you know, where the, where the, you know, accounted for something like overall in the United States, 40% of, of the deaths. And uh, I know in Connecticut, for example, it was, it was 80% of the deaths yeah. were long-term yeah. care facilities. And, and incredibly, um, and I don't know when we're ever going to figure out how this happened, but so what you want to do when new virus comes along, but this is not like controversial. What you want to do is protect the vulnerable populations, right? 
and then let everybody else build herd immunity. And then the vulnerable populations can, you know, open up and it takes mm -hmm. about a month. Uh, this once, thing once, over in April. once we have enough regular folks walking around who are, who are immune to it, who've gotten over it, who've dealt with it, then the, if the virus, the virus then can't find pathways to get to other people. It, That's a good way to describe it. It's right. There's two ways to look at, at herd immunity. One is what I used to think of it as a, as a kind of evolutionary uh, response to dealing with, um, uh, you know, the, the way human beings have learned or our bodies have learned to deal with viruses, it, you know, they, this way they weaken over time. And, and you can look at the curves and see that, you know, it comes and, and it goes. Um, now, uh, another way to look at it is just pure probability theory, you know, mm. uh, it's just math. So not everybody needs immunities. Uh, at some point, the virus can't find a host and and that's it. Now, um, there's a lot of confusion about, about this. It doesn't mean that for all time and eternity, now SARS-CoV-2 vanishes uh, from the earth, right? <laughs> it comes back in every generation yeah. because you, you have to build immunities with every new birth. You know, every, every fresh piece of flesh out there needs to build an immune system. And that's just the way it is. And these things go around and around. It, well, you know, talking about isolating uh, vulnerable population, populations, uh, at one point a few years ago, I was visiting someone who was in a special care home. And I remember in the fall, you know, you were greeted with this big thing, you know, it's flu season. We need everybody to stop Thank and you. sanitize their hands. And, Thank you. you know, so they had this, this extra protocol they introduced yes. at a certain time of, of year That's because right. they didn't want a flu to get into their facility. Right. And, and what was interesting to me about your book is we hear a lot about how, oh, this is a coronavirus. I learned in your book that the common cold is also a coronavirus. It's so the the fact that it the, the way it looks, the way it's shaped, the, the way it acts in nature is not unique. But what was also a big takeaway for me from the book is just how many pandemics there have been uh, in the 20th century. You know, you mentioned 68, 69, the Woodstock Music Festival took place during a global pandemic uh, that killed hundreds of thousands of people globally. And, yeah, adjusted for, for population, it, 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 it exceeds 200,000 if you wanted to make that adjustment, yeah. But what, what seems, you know, when I talk to my father, who's 82, about this, he never expected the government to act the way that it did, even though he's 82. He's, in a, sure. he's one of those vulnerable people. Um, but he's lived through these things before. He's, he's, he's seen how it's supposed to go. It seems like the vast majority of the population are just completely clueless about how our bodies naturally deal with a new bug that moves through. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's like we had several generations that didn't listen in ninth grade biology, or maybe they don't teach biology in ninth grade anymore. That's very possible. You know, I wake up every day and I see this. There was an article this morning. <laughs> I saw, I, thinking, I guess you can print anything, but the, the opening sentence of the article said, herd immunity is something we definitely want to avoid. I, I don't know what that means. What, what could you possibly mean that we should avoid herd immunity? I mean, viruses, virus, uh, vaccines work through herd immunity. You know, I, th I don't think that people even understand how vaccines work. The head of the World Health Organization, who uh, apparently has never been trained in any kind of uh, science at all, said that he doesn't want the virus to go away through exposure. He wants it to go away through a vaccine. Well, and, and, and so getting back to my Facebook post from March, 
some of some of the things on there when I when I said you know we shouldn't be doing this lockdown let's try this instead one person posted why don't we wait a few weeks and see if they come up with a vaccine and wow. so I think now we realize you know now it's public knowledge vaccines take a lot of time and effort yeah, <laughs> they, and they, they don't occur in weeks right? right and and another interesting thing that again one of the private messengers who didn't want to be public uh, is a person who is a shepherd who who deals with illnesses coming into the flock and and basically said well yeah you you have to get a certain number of them to become immune in order to protect the other ones and this would be natural in humans too sure, but again sure. are maybe not enough of us are familiar with animal husbandry anymore to really understand how this stuff works my my mother understands uh, viruses and you know um, her mother before her after after 1918 um, the, the, that was a catastrophic experience, 1918, the Spanish mm -hmm. flu. Uh, and it wasn't just that the flu was, was bad. It was that the response to it was terrible. The quarantines, uh, you know, the mandatory masks, you know, the public uh, freak out, mostly in Chicago and San Francisco. New York stayed calm the entire time. But public health officials realized after that that you definitely don't want to be panicking and, mm -hmm. and muscling people and pushing people around. Like, you can't use compulsion to uh, to make the virus do this or that it's it's futile so there was a big effort after 1918 to 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 um learn more about viruses and also to educate the public so when the polio epidemic of 1949 to 1952 came along everybody knew that uh, you know stay safe stay cautious but don't panic let's, let's just wait and uh, and you know tragically some people will get it and that was wicked you know that really took that took down uh crippled for, for life young girls between the ages of like like uh, eight and 12 i mean it's, it's a hideous horrible thing but uh, yeah, and then 57, 58, and 68, 69, I don't, I don't think that once we're all done with this, that the infection fatality uh, rate will be anywhere close to what we dealt with in 68, 69, 57, 58. Uh, in fact, it keeps falling all the time to the point that it doesn't seem like it's even uh, much of a thing beyond a seasonal flu at, at, at best, and, and actually far more mild than seasonal flu for most uh, demographics. Uh, I want to say one other thing about um, the vaccine issue, though, um, since I hope your listeners understand that the way a vaccine works is that the same way the smallpox inoculation worked for George Washington's armies, what you do is you provide some measure of infection of the thing from which you want to become immune, right? So a vaccine is an exposure. Uh, so this is why these 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 people think that um, that they would rather have a vaccine than be exposed. Well, vaccine exposes you, right? It's it's not as safe and effective as natu naturally acquired uh, uh, immunities, but it's a it's a great way to kind of kick give the immune system a kick forward. If your immune system does not work, mm. neither will a vaccine. So right. this is a serious issue, right? So most of the people who died, uh, CDC estimate that it might be as many as 94% of the people who died um, from, from SARS-CoV-2 died because they, their immune systems weren't functioning because they had other comorbidities like heart disease and uh, diabetes and, and so on. And that only 6% only of the pe people who died you know, were were otherwise healthy except for having got the virus. So 
it's really a question whether and to what extent the vaccine could have, even if we had it, would have made any difference, big difference in the, the amount of uh, death per million. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting because I, I, I know someone personally who works within hospital administration in, in greater New York City. And one of the things that he said to me um, as it, New York City was peaking with the number of infections and, and people who were being hospitalized is he was saying, you know, I don't think there's anyone now left in New York who doesn't know or know of someone who may have passed away from this. But he said what he was seeing in his hospital, and he said, everyone we're seeing who's passing away from this is probably a person who was destined to pass away in the next couple of years anyway, mm-hmm. you know, because of these other conditions that they had. Um, interesting, though, about the, about the 1918 pandemic and what I thought was fascinating, I also learned from your book, is that the 20th century really did bring about the dawn of greater international travel. We had migrations of people from Europe to North America. We had a war, which meant that, you know, people, troops, soldiers, munitions, et cetera, were being traded more and more around the world. And it sort of began the age of greater liberty in, in transit for people to move around the world. And one of the things that, uh, and I forget the name of the doctor, but there was a doctor that you quoted in the book who said that the fact that people travel more means that these pathogens spread more easily, which means that as a, as a whole, uh, as a population of the earth, we're all getting an opportunity to get exposed to these different things on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. So it becomes more difficult for something absolutely strange mm-hmm. to come along for which we have no resistance at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk about, isolated cultures in the world back in the 19th century, you know, had never met anyone from Europe, for example, Mm -hmm. Europeans come in all of a sudden these, these terrible diseases decimate the population Mm -hmm. that made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, and it made me wonder if the, the, the people who are focused on some of these things, you know, they're, they're looking for the next great pandemic. It sounds as though it may be that, the next great pandemic may actually not be forthcoming. And when certain conditions came up this time, they thought, Oh, here's our chance. We've been preparing for this. Mm-hmm. Now we get to try this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's right. They've been pl- planning a big social experiment for something like 14 years, but you know, a lot, a lot of it really comes down to Bill Gates. You know, he's given all these Ted talks, you know, for years, scaremongering about the next uh, pandemic. Uh, thank you for, for your observation about, um, growing immunities in the 20th century. The philosopher king, I would say, of viruses in the world uh, is Sunetra Gupta of Oxford. And she's the one who made that observation. And I, I tell you, but she, she first observed it. It just amazed me. So just to be clear what she's arguing, she's saying that because of technology, uh, flights and, and uh, growing prosperity, we had more mixing of the population than ever uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And then extending all the way up through the... Um, the next 20 years, leading to the, the healthiest and the, the most immuno-strengthened uh, uh, population in the world, and ever fewer naive tribes, right, that are vulnerable to disease. So we got stronger and stronger and stronger. And this, she argues, accounts for one of the great, you know, mysteries. Otherwise, is why are we living so long? How is it that we have, you know, we eat ourselves to death, you know, we're, we're very kind of unhealthy and yet we just keep somehow expanding lifespans. I mean, it's actually amazing. And she attributes this not just to the rise in medical technology or prosperity 
uh, or anything like that. It's, it really is attributable to the fact that we've mix, we're mixing more and more together and we're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So, so, so yeah, this is Sinatra Gupta's point. I, I think she is an absolutely uh, brilliant, brilliant thinker. But your point is a good one. Um, so you have Bill Gates out there who's been fear-mongering about the, the next pathogen you know, for, for 10 years now. And you can watch these talks and he treats the pathogen as like life's going along normally. And then you get, you know, hit by a, you know, an asteroid or something. Yeah. An asteroid, like an exogenous, you know, enemy comes in. In other words, I think he thinks of viruses and biological viruses, the way he thought of viruses in, uh, in computer world, right? So your computer's working fine. You, you click the wrong link, you know, suddenly there's malware on your computer. So you need a program to, to rip it out and so you can function back normally. The program in this case is a vaccine, you know, so I think, I think he just intellectually very confused. And, you know, if you, if you listen to his lectures, you can't detect, detect the slightest, slightest bit of medical understanding at all. I mean, like no understanding of cell biology at all in this guy. And yet with his philanthropy and so on, um, he kind of has, is, is funding vast amounts of the world's uh, uh, you know, research and studies on the subject, biasing it towards agent-based modeling instead of old-fashioned uh, medical knowledge, you know, and that, that I think is where we went wrong. We went with the modelers over, over, the, uh, over the scientists and over the computer scientists over the medical scientists. Well, it's interesting though, but I think it also tunes into the, to the fact of how news media has been um, sort of I don't know. News media has been falling in line. It's becoming more entertainment in that it falls in line with celebrity. You know, Bill Gates is a celebrity. You know, the whole talk about him and vaccines reminds me about the other vaccine talk that nobody's talking about today, which was the whole anti-vaxxer movement, which was driven by a lot of well-known celebrities using their celebrity to help create this message that people were buying into that, again, you have a, another field of doctors saying, well, don't listen to them here. You know, here's, here's the information that's real. And it's, it's, it's this confusing mess, meth, messaging in the public and people are confused about who to listen to. And, oh, for sure. and, and then this thing has become politicized. So, yeah. you know, everyone was, everyone was amazed um, you know, at the results of the 2016 American election, because the polls had been saying that the Democrats were going to win and then Donald Trump did. And my experience, again, back to that Facebook post in March, um, I think I understand why, you know, people who feel that their opinion is not on the side of the majority are afraid to express their opinion. They still hold it. They just hold it in secret. Like all those people who messaged me saying, yeah, your, your post makes sense, David. Um, and so a certain set of opinions becomes established as holding the, the, the field and other people don't want to engage. They don't want to have the finger pointed at them. And so those voices get drowned out. What was interesting in your book is there's a section where you say, you ask, how is it that every Western government within the span of a couple of weeks started to adopt almost exactly the same policies? And in your book, you talk about how in a truly democratic society, it can take a while for decisions to be made because politicians want to be reelected. They want to make sure that they choose popular policies and it takes a while to kind of 
you know, test the public sentiment, see what they can do, what they can get away with, if there's going to be support. I remember seeing a, a press conference with the Canadian head of public health, uh, Dr. Tam. It was back in the beginning of the outbreak where people were saying, well, what about masks? And she, she held her ground. She said, well, you know, from what we know, you should sanitize your hands and wash your hands frequently. And this is going to stop the virus from spreading. And then reporters were saying, yes, but the CDC in the States is saying, you know, people should be wearing masks. And these other people are saying that we should be wearing masks. And you can kind of see the look on her face where I, I felt as though she was starting to feel a little bit like bullied, like under that pressure like, hey, everybody else is doing this. And, and what you point out in the book is that it seemed, there was actually a study um, that was referenced in the book. Uh, someone went and looked at the policies that were implemented mm -hmm. and determined that it was simply uh, governments wanted to be seen to be doing something and simply started copying each other. Yeah, that's a great research that came out. I forget now where it was published. Um... Uh, maybe it might have been the National Bureau of Economic Research. I'm not sure where it was. We're reading so many studies all the time. But yeah, that was the theory. And I think it's the best theory. Uh, people who... Uh, it was Carl Wenberg. Uh, yeah, does, does it give a citation? National there? Academy of Sciences, National August Academy. 11th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stuff. Um, so one of the problems that people said with my thesis that, you know, this thing was born of agent-based modeling, the George Bush administration, the CDC, it's like, that. okay, that's interesting, but that doesn't account for the UK, Spain, you know, Brazil, Peru. And stuff. So this study is very important because it tracked the dates at which the government sort of shut down one after another. And they just, it's consistent with the copycat theory, not, not science. Um, it's all, it was all just, oh my God, we have to do something. We can't be seen as doing nothing. Let's just, you know, shut down the economies uh, around the world. So once, once it started happening, it's like it was out of control. And I, you remember those days. I mean, like here in the United States, when we shut down South by Southwest. I think it was on March 7th. And I was, I was outraged by that. And I, looking, look, look back at that thing. Now, this is, a, this is an event attended by somebody like 250,000 people in Austin, Texas. I mean, it's a huge convention. So we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of contracts and uh, arrangements for flights and hotels and and all these companies going this is like the big sales uh, thing of the year and just just one day the next the austin uh austin government just said nope you can't have it now i you know so on march 8th i wrote a big article about this i said you know this is this is un-american this is outrageous now well, here's what's interesting from what we know about the demographics of SARS-CoV-2 and who is threatened uh, with uh, fatality from this thing, there was probably a single soul who would have attended right. South by Southwest. Who would have, and so that conference would have been great for the beginning of herd immunity to spread in Texas because people were coming from all over the world. It would have been the perfect time to build immunities in the population. I think if South by Southwest had, had uh, taken place normally, uh, Texas would have had far less of an outbreak than it did. And it, it would have protected almost, you know, for, for the whole population, certainly Central Texas, maybe extending out in uh, East and West too. I mean, it would have been the perfect time to deal with the virus. Instead, they canceled it and prolonged the pain. And then mm -hmm. Texas later developed a problem. You see what I mean? So, I thought that was an outrageous thing to have done. And when I wrote that article, you, you talk about, you know, the strange 
strange way in which we've tabooed, you know, certain subjects and everybody knows what they're supposed to believe and how people are being punished for being dissidents. When I wrote that article on March 8th, people found it outrageous. They thought it was disgusting that I wanted, wanted this normal convention to go ahead. I, so ever since then, I felt like I've, I've been living in an alternative universe. And, you know, all I've really said is that we should uh, have a normal functioning society and a business sector like, like always. And that's what's consistent with good public health. Everything else we've done has, has only created really an unprecedented health catastrophe and economic one too. Well, you know, the, the, the story initially, everyone remembers that graph with the big, the big uh, curve and the flattened curve. And the whole idea was hospitals and medical care professionals aren't ready for a whole bunch of people to get sick all at once. We need to stop things for a couple of weeks so everyone can be prepared. And maybe that makes sense, right? Maybe it makes sense to slow down the spread of these things for a couple of weeks for doctors to become prepared and hospitals to get provisions, et cetera. But then, as you point out in the book, the three or weeks became six months suddenly yeah. or with this yeah. constantly changing narrative. Here, here where I live, by the way, I live in uh, Atlantic Canada mm-hmm. in what is now being called the Atlantic bubble. They, we were successful in our initial lockdown and getting rid of all the viruses that were spreading naturally. And so now uh, there's, if anyone wants to come into this area, they have to do a 14-day quarantine. And the result of that has been that nobody here is immune to it. Um, it hasn't had a chance to spread at all. Uh, occasionally outbreaks are occurring where it'll somehow get across the border and they stamp it out quickly. But my fear is that once it manages to take hold and it runs rampant, of course, then we're going to face all of the dangers uh, to these immunosuppressed people and to the, the compromised populations. But the cost of doing this the cost of keeping the virus out of my region has been the complete loss of the tourism industry this summer. Uh, hotel average occupancy rate in August was 15%. And in September, it had fallen down to 5%. And I don't know about you uh, and where you live, but where I live, hotel properties make up a big chunk of downtown real estate. And, you know, when I ask people, what do you think this is going to do to next year's city budget? People, people just look like deer in the headlights. Like, I don't, like, let's talk about the cost of this lockdown because, you know, my audience are small business people or people that want to buy businesses. And I don't think the general population really understands just how interconnected we all are with respect to the economy. And if you don't, you know, we didn't allow tourists to come from New England or Quebec or Ontario here over the summertime, which means now these hotels in one case, a big hotel here in my town went from 200 employees to 25. So that's number one, those 175 people lost their jobs. Number two, the hotel certainly isn't going to have the money to pay their tax bill next year. Number three, what will then be the knock-on of that? Are we going to lose our libraries? Are we going to lose public transit? Are we going to, you know, lose the police force? I mean, who knows? And, and this is the, the real cost that I don't think anyone was appreciating back in the beginning uh, of, of how this could unravel and just how bad this could be. I got an email this week from an organization uh, here in Canada, uh, an insolvency organization organizing a workshop on dealing with the coming wave of defaults in debts. So, you know, one of the things I'm on record for saying is that the CARES Act in the United States 
uh, one of the one of the provisions in the CARES Act was that people with an SBA loan were given six months of payments made for them. Um, and everyone says this is the government trying to help small business. Um, but I know that uh, the SBA probably needed time to build out the ability to handle the enormous wave, uh, wave of loan defaults that's likely going to come once those deferrals end. Because if you bought a business at the end of 2019 and you got a 90% loan from the SBA, you're highly leveraged. If you happen to be in an industry that's been affected by this lockdown, a pub or a restaurant or any kind of hospitality business, how are you going to make those loan payments? I mean, this, the, the, and I think recently I saw somewhere where it said a hundred thousand restaurants in the United States are reporting that they will not reopen. It's probably more than that. It's probably closer to 150 by this point. You know, it's like, it's the saddest thing when you drive around New England, it's like every town has been windswept, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's like half the businesses are shuttered everywhere you go. And it, the tragedy is absolutely overwhelming. But you know, I just got back from New York. It's just, I don't know, it looked like half the businesses in New York are shut down, you know? And, yeah. and, 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 you know, if you're a hotel, uh, they're, they're trying to sell, many, many of these properties are trying to sell. The problem is they can't, they can't find buyers, right? And uh, the property taxes are so high. Mm-hmm. And the restrictions on on what you can do in those properties, for example, there's a, a hotels in New York typically uh, will sell only with a, a union contract. So all your workers have to unionize. It's very expensive. So suddenly you're you know, acquiring the hotel even for, for nothing. You, you're facing tremendous uh, tax liabilities and, and liabilities all over the place. For, you can't just hire people off the street. You have to hire labor union workers. So you're already you know, uh, uh, deep underwater, even if you acquire the hotel for free. So though this is why the properties aren't selling. So, you know, at what point is the market going to adjust and what's that going to look like? I mean, I I don't even, I can't even fathom what it's going to look like, you know? I mean, and and New York isn't even open. They've had basically, they've had an equilibrium level of, of, uh, herd immunity in New York since since something like late April. Mm-hmm. So you can you can see it's went to normal paths like up 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 death death and then flat and now it's been flat line for months and months and months and months and months and months. They still aren't open. Um, the restaurants are are now at twenty five percent capacity. Is is so you're saying New York City is likely one of the safer places to walk around if you're afraid of catching coronavirus. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I was there March 2nd. There was coronavirus all over the place. Everybody, thank God for that, by the way. You know, they didn't lock down until uh, uh, about March 16th, 17th, 18th. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, in New York, they, they had six weeks where the, where the virus just spread all over the place. And that's, that was good, you know, because then the immunity, herd immunity built up. And then it went away. But incredibly, the governor uh, uh, and the mayor... Uh, sort of came together and decided that they would just, I guess, forever shut down New York. I mean, Broadway's closed. You can't go into these silly restaurants, you know, it's like, and they, and we have, I don't know if you know anything about, about government in America, but it's, it's uh, hilariously incompetent compared to Canada, you know? Uh, I don't know. We do government really poorly in this country. So we have our, our track and trace system is, is, is cart- cartoonish, you know? Um, so in New York restaurants, you have to go in and they, they, they measure the, the, the temperature of your, of your skin, you know, 
which yeah, if you've been out in the sun, it's going to be kind of hot. If you've been inside the air, it's just going to be a little cold. You know, it's like ridiculous. And then they want to know your name and number. And everybody just routinely says whatever, oh, Mickey Mouse. And they just list a series of numbers and, and they write them down and everybody winks, winks. <laughs> the whole city has become one big speakeasy. Um, but it's, it's tragic. I mean, it's, it's like, how could you, do, how could you take, do this to a city that, you know, 100, 200 years of, of building, you know, the, the greatest city in the world and just wreck it in, in a matter of months. I mean, it's just incredible. The number of artists out of work and, and yeah, the, the bars and restaurants, it's, tr it's tremendous. But, but I, think, I think when people like you and I are discussing this, we're trying to rationalize how someone could make a decision to do this. And, and the yeah. fact of the matter is, is that the, there was no rationality and that's the point. Mm -hmm. it, it's driven by emotion. So mm -hmm. we have an emotional outcry from people who are fearful for their lives because they've been told something is going to come and, mm -hmm. and potentially kill them. And then we have a political class who is fearful of being seen to not respond properly. Mm -hmm. They want to be seen to do something. And so they, mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. So they look at other jurisdictions and they go, oh, well, that's what they're doing there. So we'll do it here, right? So, so there's plausible deniability, right? If, well, if it turns out we didn't do the right thing, I was just doing what they were doing. And they've got doctors over there, right? Yeah. And, and, the and politicians so, say this too. They say, well, everybody was afraid. So I had to do something. Why, why were the people afraid? Uh, and why, why do you acquiesce to irrational fear? You know, as a politician, don't you have a responsibility to uh, talk people through in a, in a reasonable way what, what a virus is and what it does and how we're going to deal with it? I mean, is that, is that what good statesmen do? They just respond to fear? That's crazy. Well, you know, and whenever I bring this topic up, yesterday my son and I went to a skateboard shop because he wants to update his, his deck. And I was talking with the clerk there. And... Um, I've started asking, knowing that I was going to do this interview with you, I've started asking people if they're afraid of coronavirus. And there hasn't been a single person who's answered the question. What they all reply with is their hopes and desires with respect to the government rules. So when I asked this one clerk, you know, are you afraid of getting coronavirus? He says, well, I hope that that recent outbreak that happened near here is, is, is satisfied so that we can move from orange phase back to yellow. So we, we're, we live in a rainbow world now where things are color coded as to the restrictions and levels of lockdowns, et cetera. So actually catching the illness is not what people are afraid of. People want to walk a fine line of, be, of proper behavior so that they're allowed the liberties they, that we once enjoyed everywhere. And it reminds me very much of a school scenario, a, a classroom scenario where you know, the, the children misbehave and so the teacher changes the rules and, and it's almost like we've all been thrust back into that kind of space. And it, it's, it's maddening because of course, at the end of it all is this chant, we need to do this because we're trying to protect these people's lives. And I, I hate to beleaguer it, but to get back to that Facebook, point, Facebook post I put up in March, one of the lone voices of support that I had was a guy who posted a link to an article that explained that if the trucking industry in North America had been shut down in 2019, something like 25,000 lives would have been saved because of all the highway collision fatalities were involving uh, big transport trucks on highways. And which then leads to the point that if we are wanting to save lives at all costs, then highway speed limits, of course, then should be what, uh, 20 miles an hour or something. I mean, we have the ability to live in a world where we do everything we can to save every potential life, but decisions are always made that, you know, 
unfortunately, bad things happen, which are tragedies. You can't make the whole world bear that cost, which, you know, you and I have been talking about the experience in Canada and the United States and the Western countries, et cetera. On September the 26th, The Economist magazine reported that 71 million people in developing countries now have been pushed down to the bottom most category of abject poverty. These are people now who are trying to live on less than $1.90 a day who were at the end of the supply chains. You know, you buy something that was assembled in one country that came made with parts from China and they're buying stuff from other countries. And at the very end of the chain is some person who's working themselves up, trying to uh, get a better job, do something, you know, more productive for their family to put more food on the table. And now that we've, we've shattered this fragile network of, of trade and commerce throughout the world, 71 million people now have been put to this bottom category of poverty. These are the people who are going to pay the biggest price for the decisions that have been made in the Western countries. You know, people who can just work from home over Zoom, some of them are better off. They haven't been paying for daycare. They haven't had to commute, et cetera. But it, it boggles my mind that people can say, we have to take these draconian measures in order to save what we now understand completely with scientific certainty, a very few number of people, and we're doing this to, to millions of people. Yeah, yeah. Half the daycares in the United States are shut down. So what do you do as a working, uh, working mother? You know, uh, we, we had a daycare shortage as it was, and, and now half are gone. I don't, I don't even know what, I don't know what next year looks like. You know, will, will women ever go back to work to the office? I don't know. Well, I mean, I've, I've seen headlines all the time now talking about the losses in gender equality and opportunities for women, because a lot of them have ended up, you know, some, in some places they're doing homeschooling and some places they're just, uh, they've been chosen as the one to stay home and take care of the kids or, or sometimes just trying to juggle two working parents in a house full of kids where everyone's trying to do something on zoom it's become unworkable and, and one parent decides, you know what, we, we have to make sure that uh, at least one person is able to focus and earn an income here. And, and I think 2021 is going to be a really bad year. And I'm just waiting to find out who they're going to point the finger at, because you know that these politicians are not going to take responsibility for what's Apparently happening. Not. Apparently there, not. there are a, a few exceptions. Let me tell you here where I live. Um, when they reordered the restrictions under the, the rainbow of rules, one of the things that the premier did say is he said that we will not have a complete economic shutdown again. He, he admitted that that was a mistake because what ended up happening was certain businesses closed and then had a hard time recalling uh, workers because the federal government put into effect benefits, which were more generous in some cases than the wages. And so people actually had a disincentive to return to work when it was safe here where I live because of policies enacted in Ottawa. And we, we haven't even touched on that, but you know, for the people who think things are okay right now, a lot of the reason why people believe things are okay is because of all of this government spending, the stimulus money, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, you know, printed up money that didn't exist before has been pushed out to try to, to try to, you know, help smooth over this problem. Uh, I think by next year, you know, if this, if the, the government money was the band-aid, I think by next year, the band-aid will be torn off and we're going to actually see 
the results economic, economically what this lockdown has is going to be. The debt, the money creation, um, yeah, I don't know, the, the, the shattered tax base, right? I mean, for state and local governments, you know, I don't know what happens there. You know, they don't have printing presses, you know, that they can just crank out new money and, and cover the bills. The state and local uh, governments have to actually balance their budgets, they have to get money in. Uh, they could say we're not going to have any money left over for infrastructure spending, much less uh, support for the poor, or aged, or anything like that. I mean, the uh, symphonies and libraries, it's, it's going to, the economic costs of this thing are going to show up next year. And it's really, it's actually it's extremely terrifying. You know, I've worried about these lockdowns, uh, you know, as I mentioned, since early March. I think if we had ended them on April 1st, we would have always looked look back at those two or three weeks as been the you know the the stupidest thing to, to happen um, <clears throat> to Western governments in in hundreds of years, but we would have been able to patch things up pretty quickly and 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 move on and just felt like idiots you know for a few years and then uh, would have gotten down in the history books as a classic case of uh, panic. Mm, but I think we could have gotten through it. Um, it's it's October. I mean, the U.S. now still has about the same stringency on a national basis that we had in April. I mean, it's just what we've done is beyond belief, and I don't understand what it is. Like, why is our public, why are our politicians so bad? I mean, every one of these guys at every level of government in the United States, anyway, acts as if he or she is an infallible uh, interpreter and understander of disease mitigation and, and SARS-CoV-2. They all parade around as if that's true. I mean, we know it's not true, and yet they won't admit it. They will not admit that they're wrong. It's one of the reasons they won't unlock down, because they, they can't figure out how to do it in a way without having that dreadful question, what's changed? You know, why are we open now, but we were closed before, you know? Uh, like your situation, you know, you're, you're, you've got an, a, a, a naive population now with, with this lacking immunities to this virus that everyone's going to get at some point. You know, you're like a miniature in New Zealand. You know, you're going to keep tourism shut forever? Well, there's a section in your book about what happened in New Zealand. And yeah. when I was reading that book, I was, it was foreshadowing what is yeah. going to happen here. And, yeah. and when, I, when I bring that topic up with people, I say, well, what do you think is going to happen to us when the virus comes in? People say, well, if people follow the rules, the virus won't come in. Okay. So, For a thousand so, years. Yeah, a thousand years of lockdown. <laughs> so what's the end? What is the end? And, and then if you ask what the end is, then people just don't, they say, well, a, vi a vaccine that, that, you know, and you can't, I mean, what if there is no vaccine? If there, well, and, if we, could, what if you don't we need were, a vaccine? What if, what if, what if you're safer getting the disease and getting the vaccine? You know, that's going to be true for the overwhelming majority of the population. And what if, what if the vaccine doesn't actually help the people who are going to die from this thing? In which, if if you're going to die from it, it means you, your immune system doesn't work. In which case, the vaccine is not going to help you. So I, you know, and. And we don't have a vaccine for AIDS. We don't have a vaccine for the common cold. We never got a vaccine for uh, SARS-CoV-1. We never really had a proper vaccine for influenza. It only works half the time. Yeah, if that, right? Um, yeah. So, so the, yeah, I don't know what this vaccine looks like. Sometimes I just, you know, I don't know. Maybe somebody's going to come up with a placebo and the government's going to call it a vaccine and everybody's going to take it and we'll just be done. I don't know. I don't know. But it's, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And, and I really have to blame the media 
and irresponsible uh, uh, politicians who have lied to us. And, um, you know, I'm so, also so grateful for those scientists and those doctors and those few voices that have stood up and consistently now for uh, eight months and, and told the truth, despite the shutdowns and thank you for a Facebook post, for example, you know, it makes a big difference. You have to stand up. And that's what we've, we've done here at the American Institute for Economic Research. We've really tried to just tell, tell the scientific truth, uh, highlight the economic costs, um, <clears throat> say, you know, not go along with the herd uh, on mm. this whole thing. And, and I think you have to do that. These are the times where you, it's, it's time for moral courage. It's time to stand up and, and say what's true. Well, Jeffrey, I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, I want to, the, the reason for making this video is because I know that the topic of the lockdown is important to my viewership. I, and I want to spark rational, intelligent discourse yeah. uh, so that people can really start talking about this, not just reacting emotionally um, to images from Wuhan or, or things that they've been told or things that they've been shown, but to actually know. And I think that your book is a great collection. There it is right there. Uh, Liberty or Lockdown. It's available on Amazon. Uh, I think your book is a great collection of simply recounting actual information. Um, you, you quote a lot of studies, a lot of research. The history on pandemics and, and humanity's relationship with viruses yeah. was, was really informative to me. It's never been something I've studied before. Right. Um, and, you know, if, if people are wanting to to learn more or to get to know you or your work better what's the best way for them to reach you online it's just, I'm, I'm hanging around on twitter a lot so it's jeffrey a tucker um that's r-e-y a tucker and uh i'm doing a lot of tweeting and I, I it's my preferred method for getting information and for communicating with people and then awesome. of course the the website uh, the american institute for economic research i'm the editorial director of that and so we're running material every day Awesome. Thank you, Jeffrey. And uh, I'm going to put a link below. I put this into uh, my Amazon bookstore along with all the other books that I've found to be um, informative and that I've enjoyed. And I'm, I've added this as well. I'll put the link down below in the show notes. Uh, and I will put a link to your Twitter profile as well. And for everyone who's watching, um, let's start thinking about this because as long as everyone just keeps waiting for a vaccine, the, the pain of stopping economic activity uh, is just going to get worse and worse. It's going to drag out longer and longer. And if we can avoid a decade of depression, we're going to have to start acting now and putting pressure on rule makers to remove these silly restrictions. The economy is how we eat. It's ultimately how labor is divided so that you get your share of what the farmer was able to produce. And, and that fundamentally, I believe, is lost in a lot of people because they become disconnected <clears throat> from that whole chain of activity. And with that, I'll say see you later. And uh, don't forget to head on over to davidcbarnett.com, subscribe to my e email list. I normally talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing businesses, but I thought today was a great topic. Uh, I didn't want to let pass by.